Welcome everyone to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 280 recap on Twitter Spaces. Today we're going to be discussing cluster mempool. We're also going to be discussing a new Bitcoin network testing tool called Warnet and some recent simulation testing results from that. And the Bitcoin Core 26.0 release and associated PR review club. I'm Mike Schmidt. I'm a contributor at Optech and executive director at Brink, where we fund Bitcoin open source developers. Merch? Hey, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs on Bitcoin stuff. Peter? Hi, I'm Peter. Uh, I also work at Chaincode Labs on Bitcoin stuff. And Matthew? Let's keep the trend going. Hi there, my name is Matthew, and I also work on Bitcoin stuff at Chaincode, uh, research development and education. Awesome. Well, thank you both for joining us. We're going to go through the newsletter sequentially, starting with cluster mempool discussion. Now, we've mentioned cluster mempool tangentially in the newsletters and our podcast. I think we mentioned it um, when we talked about the Waiting for Confirmation series, and I think there was a Stack Exchange question that referenced cluster mempool, but we haven't covered it directly head-on. So luckily, we have Peter Wulla with us today, who's been deeply involved with an effort to reinvent the mempool under the name cluster mempool. And Peter, I think many people... For many listeners are familiar with the idea of a mempool as a maybe a big list of valid Bitcoin transactions that aren't yet in a block. And maybe sometimes mempools fill up and transaction fee rates spike and sometimes users need to use fee bumping techniques to move their fee rates, uh, their transaction fee rate within the mempool. And sometimes low fee rate transactions maybe get dropped from certain mempools. And maybe it's not perfect, but it seems to work. So what's the issue with the mempool today? <laughs> um, well, uh, d just to scope things out, cl cluster mempool is really about dealing with some of the complexities involved that, that result from having uh, dependent transactions in the mempool. So uh, I think that the typical example that people are most familiar with is CPFP, Child Pays for Parent, where it is possible you receive a transaction for some, from someone, it pays a low fee. Uh, you want to get that transaction confirmed. Something you can do is spend that output, even though it is unconfirmed yet in a transaction yourself, at a higher fee. And the correct behavior you expect and one that has been implemented since, I don't know, 2015 or something, uh, is that if you have this low fee parent unconfirmed transaction and a high fee child unconfirmed transaction, the mining code in Bitcoin Core or uh, related projects um, will consider them as a single package together that has sort of the sum of the fees uh, paying for both because, well, minor can't include the, the parent anyway without the child. Now, um, that's all great. Uh, we, we've had that for years, but um, uh, there are some issues with that. And uh, e even though cluster mempool ended up being, well, ended up, I, I shouldn't say it's finished. We don't even have a concrete proposal yet. It, it's a a work in progress idea that's crystallizing as we go along and it'll be a while before uh, we're there. But um, really the in initial motivation for it is uh, the fact that eviction really doesn't work as we want it to. Um, let me go into that briefly. So um, what the mining code, and when I say mining code, I really mean the code that decides which transactions get taken from the mempool uh, to put into a prospective block to give to the hashers that miners are using. So it's really about transaction selection. Um, how that works is we compute for every transaction the set of all its unconfirmed ancestors. So in the case of a CPFP, that would, for the child, include also the parent. And then we compute the average fee rate for that ancestor set, as we call it. So that's the sum of the fees divided by the sum of the sizes. And then we just look at the entire mempool, sort it this way, pick the one with the highest ancestor fee rate, include that in the block template, and start over. Uh, this is an approximation, this is far from optimal, but it is good enough to deal with CPFP. 
Um, now, sometimes, uh, as people are undoubtedly aware, the mempool can f fill up. So every node in Bitcoin Core has a limitation on how big the mempool can get. And if it starts using more memory than that, we have to evict some things. We want to evict the things that are least likely to be confirmed in the near future. So uh, really what we would want to do is evict the thing that would be mined last by our own metric. Um, that's unfortunately really not computationally feasible to, to do a uh, mining algorithm, as I described, it's computing these ancestor sets, sorting and picking the best one. We can't just run that over the entire mempool. You run it just on, on one block worth of data and it would be way too slow to, anytime we want to evict something, run it to the very end. So instead what we do is um, do exactly the opposite. Namely for every transaction in the mempool, we compute what its descendant set fee rate is. That is the, the set of all its children, uh, the sum of the fees divided by the sum of the sizes and then find the lowest of that. It sounds like this is exactly the opposite of what we're doing uh, in, in mining cases. Turns out it isn't. Um, you, you can construct examples and they're really not all that outrageous where the first thing you would evict is really the first thing you would want to mine and that's not a good situation. Um, like clearly we don't want to evict the best transaction we would want to mine. And so Cluster Mempool started as an attempt to fix this problem. Um, and the, the idea is really, uh, as I said, we, we, we would want to run the mining algorithm on the whole mempool, but we can't do that because it's too slow. Um, instead, what we're going to do is just pre-compute things. Uh, so you, you, you pre-compute sort of the, the sets of transactions that would be mined together. Um, this, this is hard to, to do without, uh, you know, having some uh, diagrams or, or a whiteboard. But um, in, in, in short, it boils down to we pick, we try to pre-compute how things would be mined. This gives us uh, a very efficient data structure to find out the order that transactions would be mined in uh, at, at block mining time. We can reverse that. So eviction becomes the exact opposite of uh, block building. Um, but this, this only works if the amount of transactions that can be affected by a new transaction is, is bounded. Uh, sadly, it, it's possible today that really one new transaction completely changes the order of every other transaction in the mempool, and that's not a good situation. So cluster mempool is uh, likely going to be a proposal for a change in the relay policies that Bitcoin Core uses um, that involves limiting uh, the size of clusters, and, and uh, I should define what a cluster is. A cluster is the set of transactions a transaction is connected to through either parent of or child of relation. So uh, it, it is the set of all your parents and the set of all their parents, but also the, the set of all their children and then all the parents of those children and all the children of those parents and so forth. Uh, everything that's connected. And so the, the proposal will likely be that we limit how big those things can get. And by limiting how big those things can get, we can run the mining algorithm on really just the clusters. Anytime a transaction changes, we just run the mining algorithm on just that one cluster. And that gives us enough information that uh, to use at mining time. And I'll stop there as an introduction. And what maybe further um, defining, this is something I'm trying to wrap my head around, is the difference between a cluster and a chunk. Yes. So uh, chunks are, sub cl cluster is clear. It's, it's a set of, of all transactions you're connected to. Um, chunks are 
groups of transaction within a cluster that you would want to mine together. Uh, again, CPFP, the parent and the child would form one chunk, e even though maybe you have more dependencies, even though there are other things dangling off somewhere. Uh, that tree, it, it um, so the, the, it, more procedurally, uh, the way we do it is, so you take a cluster, um, set of transactions, we run the normal mining algorithm, or maybe even in the future, a better one, on just that cluster. The output of that is the order in which you would want to mine just those transactions, ignoring anything else in the mempool, ignoring anything else that goes into your block. Just those transactions, what order would you want to mine them in? Um, and then think of every transaction as being its own little chunk, start, start out that way. And anytime you have a chunk uh, whose fee rate is higher than the chunk before it, merge the two together. Uh, the, the, and do this in any order and keep doing it until you have none left. Those are the chunks of, of a cluster. Um, and they're really the, the things you would want to mine together because clearly if you, know, you have a transaction followed by a higher fee rates transaction, you would never want to include just the first of the two. You'll always want the second one too. Um, and so a cluster can be just one chunk. It's possible that a cluster consists of chunks each of a single transaction. And a nice observation is that the fee rates of the chunks within a cluster always have to be monotonically decreasing. Uh, this just follows from the construction because whenever you have a higher fee rate chunk following a lower fee rate one, you merge them together. So um, this means that the, the the chunk fee rates go down um, and and this also uh, immediately leads to what the mining algorithm becomes it's just take the set of all the chunks and include them in uh, fee, decreasing fee rate order and because the chunks in the clusters individually are sorted in decreasing fee rate order uh, you'll never include a, a child before its parent Yes, I see someone raising their hand. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in here briefly to reiterate uh, how people can think of chunks. Um, because sure. it, it was a little abstract how you explained it just now. So um, I think many people should be aware of child pays for parent as a mechanism for reprioritizing the parent transaction. So you have a low fee rate parent transaction. You add a high fee rate child that depends on the parent being mined first. And because miners want to get the child um, or rather the fee attached to the child, they are now incentivized to include the parent in order to be able to include the child. So when we look at a cluster, which is just the complete group of transactions that are connected through child and parent relationships, we would um, want to include from a cluster first whatever set of transactions gives us the highest fee rate. So if you were approaching this naively, you would do an exponential, sorry, a, a power set search and look at each subset of the cluster and compare all of their fee rates and then pick the one that is the highest fee rate. So that might be just the aforementioned parent and child and some other transactions in that cluster might not get picked first. And if you find the optimal sets of what we would pick into a block, we would call that the chunks of a cluster. So we get a uh, complete order of the transactions in the cluster, and they would be grouped into sets of one to the entire cluster of transactions of what we would pick as one piece into the mempool. I know that was a repetition of what Peter said, but maybe that'll help. Yep. yep. We, we have a question here. Uh, Larry asks, Will this change also simplify the mempool code? It's fairly complex currently. That, that, that's a great question. Um, um, so uh, I think the answer is nuanced. Um, one thing it will do is I think it will help us 
abstract away a whole part of the complexity. So uh, uh, a significant... Let me start over. So I, I think that the, a large part of what we are trying to do, and I haven't touched on this yet, I've only talked about block building and eviction, but there are lots of other things that Bitcoin Core does that effectively involve guessing how good is a transaction, get, getting some metric on that. And really what Cluster Mempool does, it, it gives us a number for every transaction. Um, how good is this? Uh, taking into account the fact that, uh, you know, children can pay for parents and, and, and so forth. It is the chunk fee rate of your transaction, period. And um, having that notion, I think, s simplifies a whole lot of reasoning, but it, it, it really becomes different. So um, today we have the BIP-125 uh, replaced by fee rules, uh, and they're sort of an, or at least some of those rules are really trying to guess heuristically, making sure that the mempool gets better when these rules are satisfied. It doesn't achieve that. So the uh, BIP-125 permits accepting things that are actually not incentive compatible, and it rejects a whole bunch of things that are incentive compatible. And the, uh, part of the cluster mempool proposal will almost certainly be replace that with just actually checking incentive compatibility because we can compute that directly. Um, and conceptually, that will be, I think, a lot simpler. Um, in, in terms of code, uh, I don't know if it gets all that in, in you know, in number of lines, it's, it's almost certainly not going to be a reduction. Um, but I, I do think it will be a much better you'll get a much cleaner abstraction between those because everything related to computing the the, the clusters, the linearizations, the, the, the chunks um, can be sort of split off to a module like here are a bunch of transactions, sort them for me and tell, tell me their, their chunk fee rates. And then everything just becomes a, a function of those chunk fee rates. Um, so... I think the answer is really it, it allows us to do more complex things. And as a result, it, things will get more complex, but it'll be organized better uh, and, and it'll be cleaner to think about. Uh, and, and to be, make that a bit more concrete. Okay, Mark, go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to briefly jump in there and uh, explain what you met, meant with children can pay for parents. So in the old mempool, uh, approach and the old block building uh, template method, we would find ancestor sets and compare the fee rates of ancestor sets, pick the best ancestor set, um, update all the remaining transactions, pick the next best and so forth. So for example, if you have a transaction, a parent transaction that has two children that are both attempting to bump the parent, they would be competing per the old rules for having the better ancestor set fee rate because there are two ancestor sets here, child one with the parent and child two with the parent, and they would not be considered together. In cluster mempool, because um, things get chunked together the way we should be picking them, adding a second child that also tries to bump the parent will lead to an overall better fee rate for the set of all three. And cluster mempool will dis discover this as a chunk. So we will get into a situation where not just one child can pay for one parent, but a set of descendants can pay for an entire ancestry together if that leads to a higher set fee rate together. And that's really one of the main benefits is that we can discover more complex uh, sets like that that actually are more attractive to pick into a block before each of their sub ancestor sets. Right. So the, um, I, I think this ties in nicely with with the abstraction. So, but by having this abstraction layer for you know, you know, I have a bunch of transactions. What's the order I want to mine them in? Um, we can substitute that algorithm with something better, and we almost certainly will, as as uh, Merch explained. Um, 
and and as a result just everything gets better like this this immediately makes the mining better makes replacements better makes eviction better uh, because everything is just a function of that mining question and it, it's nicely packaged away um i also wanted to larry i wanted to 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 give another example of of what i meant earlier with it'll it'll allow us to do more complex things so um th there is ongoing dis discussion about uh package relay uh, a complex uh topic that that's sort of progressing in in parallel to cluster mempool um the one thing that that i think we've considered largely impossible to tackle is is package rbf like the combination of replacements with uh package relay and uh with cluster mempool probably whatever we come up with for rbf will generalize much more easily to packages uh and and i think that that that's also one of the the great advantages like yes things get get more complicated but by Simplifying the reasoning, uh, it, it also lets us reason about more complex things that we actually want. We have another question from the audience. Abubakar says, so the mempool is arranged in clusters and chunks that are built over time as transactions are added to the mempool. After a new block is connected, we have to evict lots of transactions from several clusters. This will make us linearize uh, several clusters in the mempool. Is that efficient? Um, yes, uh, very good question. So that is actually the um, bottleneck. Uh, we're trying to design the code in such a way that that operation is is acceptably efficient. Because in, indeed, uh, uh, suddenly you need to relinearize, rechunk. Uh, recluster uh, a whole lot of things it, it is now it, it is really easy in case what is mined uh, in a block is a suffix of the, of the linearization of, of a particular cluster then you just chop it off um, but in case it is not uh, in, in case the miner did something else than what we expected them to do basically you need to relinearize and and uh, that costs some time but we're, we're um, to give concrete numbers, uh, we're hoping to set a, or propose a cluster limit of, you know, somewhere between 50 and 100 maybe uh, in such a way that a, a simple mining algorithm, better than the one we have today, but n not a lot better, um, runs in the order of tens of microseconds, maybe 100 microseconds uh, per, per cluster. And so uh, it, it's possible that you have tons and tons of clusters affected by a new block. But even if you add those up, uh, it, it remains a reasonable amount of time. Does that answer your question? Go ahead, Merch. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, to pick up something that you mentioned, and that was so because we run the mining algorithm no longer on the entire mempool, and uh, maybe you could mute yourself while you're not talking, um, we, we no longer have to run the um, mining algorithm on the entire mempool in order to compare things, but rather we only have to run the mining algorithm on a cluster in order to find a order of the transactions in that cluster. And we can parallel, like, the clusters are completely independent. They don't affect each other's order, other than that they might have components that go ahead of something or after something, but they don't interact on the fee rates of the subcomponents of clusters. So by having a perfect order in each cluster, we can basically get a total order on the mempool by just looking, okay, across all clusters, let's look at the best element in each cluster, the best chunk, and just pick that, and then pick the next best chunk across all clusters and so forth. So building a new block template will just be taking a prefix from each, or taking prefixes from clusters and um, 
mining a block, if people or if miners essentially mine such prefixes from clusters, will also just be taking away the prefixes from the clusters, leaving the rest of the cluster intact. And since the chunks were already considering that they would be mined just in that order, if we take off prefixes at chunk borders, the rest of the cluster is already perfectly linearized. It it doesn't get changed by by the remainder um or well actually i'm not 100 sure there might be some some things that you could reorder afterwards to make it even better but it'll be a valid topology and we don't necessarily have to change anything about the clusters that remain so yeah yeah so, so exactly right so specifically uh, actually uh, it is possible that by by removing a prefix, a cluster splits in two because now they're no longer connected. But even that is a very simple operation. You just take the existing linearization and, and split it. Um, and apart from, well, now maybe those things are smaller and you can run an, a better algorithm, uh, you don't actually need to relinearize. So yeah, if, if my, basically, if, if miners pick the transactions in the order that we have them, that there is no work to us. Of course, we can't assume that a malicious miner doesn't do that, but does do that. There's another question from the audience, which was, um, how, do we know how many miners actually use Bitcoin cores, block templates, or run their own? And um, last I checked, um, or for example, if you look at mempool.space, which builds a block template according to Bitcoin Core's method uh, and compares that to what miners mine, essentially all miners appear to be using Bitcoin Core's block template plus some prioritized transactions that they may have picked due to acceleration or receiving them out of band or having a vested interest in them themselves. Yeah, I, I think we've seen evidence uh, a while ago of uh, miners running their own custom code, which resulted in an invalid block a couple months ago. But e even that, I think uh, the theory is that they started from what Bitcoin Core gave them and uh, ran, made some changes on top. Uh, so okay. I, I agree. I think they only added the Coinbase after Bitcoin Core and they hadn't accounted for the SIG ops in the Coinbase transaction. Was that exactly? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they, yeah, there was one instance of that, and then there was another instance of just the transaction ordering not not being compliant as well. I think that was a different different miner, though, right? Oh yeah, you're right. Uh, Peter, question for you on the policy side of this. It, 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 the way I'm thinking about it is, cluster mempool is operating on clusters and so the restriction here is cluster size whereas previously the algorithms were operating on ancestor and descendant limits so there was some limits on ancestors and descendants what what does a limit on cluster size look like in terms of like an end user is, is that something that that is easily determined by a wallet or like what would the feedback mechanism be for somebody who who violates that policy um Good question. So the, this this touches on, I think, a uh, potential concern people could have with cluster mempool in in that it, it makes some of the policy more black box. Um, I don't think it's meaningfully different than than what we have today. Uh, in particular, the descendant limit is also something you, as a wallet, generally don't have control over, because you know, if you spend some outputs that pays to you, you have no control over what others attach to other outputs of the same transaction. And those all feed into the descendant limit of that parent. Um, and and uh, generally, the ancestor limit you have a control over because obviously whenever you create a transaction, you know what, what unconfirmed ancestors it has. But the descendant limit you don't. And I think... Conceptually, a cluster size limit is very similar to a descendant size limit uh, in, in that regard. Um, we, we do aim for larger numbers, so, uh, you know, just, um, but cl clusters are 
bigger sets than just descendant sets. So uh, it, it, that inevitably means that some things, at least in theory, that were acceptable before under an ancestor and descendant limit are no longer acceptable under uh, cluster limits. You, you, you could today with uh, it, it happens that uh, you see clusters in the mempool of 200 plus up to you know, a thousand transactions uh, that are all connected, even though none individually violates the descendant and ancestor size limit. Merch, what do you think is a good way to wrap up here? Um, and maybe before we do that, while you think of, of the answer to that, Peter, I think there were some slides from a presentation of yours around this topic. Is that presentation is something that was recorded that people can look forward to watching? Yeah, so I, I did a talk at uh, Bitcoin Research Day that Chaincode hosted here, I don't know, a month, maybe a month or two ago uh, here. And that that presentation was recorded. Uh, I don't think the video is available yet, but it will be. Uh, my slides are linked in the Optech uh, uh, summary website on, on Cluster Mempool. So. Merch or Peter, what what if any call to action for the listeners would there be at this point, other than the curious people who want to follow along um, and and just be aware of these developments? Is there something that you're looking for help on, or that the general broader Bitcoin ecosystem should be aware of with respect to cluster mempool? Yeah, so um, right now there is a pull request by Suhas uh, to Bitcoin Core that's a work in progress implementation of cluster mempool that uh, is functionally complete. So it, it, it'll keep track of clusters, it linearizes, it replaces all, all the places where uh, fee rates are computed with, with cluster mempool based things. Um, that that is not what we expect the the eventual implementation to look like at all. But uh, it, it does give something to experiment with, and it does give something that allows you to think about how this might interact with other uh, pieces of infrastructure. And I think that that's the the big question I think that people can help with today is reason about use cases that might be affected by. Um, by this, and so there's a demonstration you you can uh, look at. Peter, thank you for joining us and walking us through this. Um, your time is valuable, and I, I think we had a great discussion. You're welcome to yeah. stay on as we progress through the rest of the newsletter, or if you have yeah, uh, linearizations to get to, then. <laughs> no, I'll stay. I'll stay on. Um, yeah. Very yes, but for, for having me. Twenty-six release uh, later, we might. Uh, also tap you as a resource. Next item from the newsletter, testing with Warnet. Matthew, in the newsletter this week, we spoke about some of the simulations that you've been running using Warnet and the resulting extra memory usage that could result from some proposed peer management code changes in Bitcoin Core. But maybe to take a step back, um, while we'd love to get into some of the specific simulation details eventually, maybe we could start off with what is Warnet? We haven't discussed Warnet uh, and Optech materials previously. Yeah, thanks. Um, so Warnet is a new project. Um, we haven't even really released version one yet, but we are already starting to use it. This is a project sponsored by Chaincode that started over the summer um, with uh, myself, Josie Blake, Will Clark, Theo Issa, um, few other contributors. Uh, oh, Max Edwards is on the crew now. And uh, the goal of Warnet is to create a P2P Bitcoin network simulator. Um, so we're taking kind of some basic ideas from the Bitcoin Core test framework. If you've ever written a functional test for Bitcoin Core, you've seen these Python scripts that can manage nodes and send RPC commands to them. We're taking that and trying to scale it up um, in the Docker or and or Kubernetes sense to hundreds or even thousands of nodes. Um, we're still using RegTest for these networks, but one of the interesting features we've been able to add is actual routable IP addresses, which is something you can't get from the Bitcoin core test framework. Um, and what that allows us to do is actually gossip adder messages between Bitcoin nodes and um, set up a network where they can actually discover each other because the nodes are routable. And then ideally at the scale of hundreds or thousands of nodes with something like Kubernetes, um, we'll be able to test the emergent 
behaviors, uh, emergent features of complicated scenarios on the network. Uh, mentioned we, so who, who is the target audience? Uh, obviously, there's a group of you working on this, but I guess when you release version one, who, what sorts of users would you anticipate um, using this software? Yeah, great question. So our, our users are Bitcoin Core developers and also Lightning client developers um, because we also have uh, some Lightning compatibility. I think you guys have already touched on the SimLN project, um, which, which has had a release. Um, and uh, they were also born out of that uh, summer um, tooling workshop uh, with Carla and Sergey. And, and so the idea is, is for people who are... Uh, experimenting with Bitcoin Core or have a question about the Bitcoin Core network or want to see what kind of things happen to Bitcoin Core or Lightning at scale. Um, so, for example, one of the, one of the first test cases we were able to use was uh, a pull request opened by Vassal over the summer um, called Sensitive Relay, where Bitcoin nodes will create um, short-term Tor connections just to send out their own transactions so that the transaction relay is private. And that was actually a bit of a hard thing to test in the, in the functional test framework, but we were able to do it in Warnet. Um, because we actually have a Tor network inside of Warnet. We have an internal um, Onion router using a local directory authority. And so we were able to actually run that test, um, which was cool. The next use, uh, and this is one that I think has, has kind of let the cat out of the bag about the project, is that we're um, uh, trying to study the, the emergent effects of increasing the connection count on the Bitcoin Core relay network, on the Bitcoin Core network. Um, there's work by Amidi and Martin, Increase the back connections that a node can take, inbound connections, particularly if those um, extra inbound connections are block relay only. Um, and so what I, what I posted on Delving Bitcoin last week was an experiment I ran with 250 nodes um, with plus a control node, which was just running uh, the release version 25.1 and then a compiled version of Martin and the Medes branch. And so we had a, a control node and a test node, and both of those nodes received inbound connection attempts from all 250, let's call them NPC nodes. And we can see uh, how much memory is being used by those two nodes over time and compare their behavior. We have um, Grafana installed, which can make some RPC requests and, and uh, report time series data about you know the, the replies um, from those RPC commands. So we can see kind of what memory is being used and monitor the connection count between the control node and the experiment node over time. So um, it was a cool demonstration of Warnet. Um, I, the, re the result was kind of not really super duper interesting. It was, um, or, or perhaps it was, <laughs> because it, it indicated that the PR wasn't especially harmful. Basically, memory increased linearly along with the number of nodes that were added. Daddy. So that's basically expected. But Warnet would have been a great place to see if there was something wrong, and then we were using exponentially more memory as... So, and then I'm interested to to try out other um, scenarios that we can run in, inside that simulation to see, uh, you know, just what other sort of things we can we can bang on um, with this proposal to the the improvements at P2P. So you you can use Warnet in the instance that you mentioned here to either test or confirm certain assumptions about how the software will will perform at at scale and under certain scenarios. Um, and I guess scenarios is an appropriate word because there's other types of scenarios that you can architect in, in Warnet as well. Maybe if you're not targeting the effect of a certain pull request, um, you could also just kind of create um, interesting or pathological scenarios within your own Warnet simulation as well and see how, how that plays out. Do you see that as a different use case or is that similar use case nope nope that's definitely part of it i mean uh, part of the inspiration for the project was the um the memory leak uh, discovered a, a few months ago in i guess it was version um 25 um that was sort of nailed down by aj where um in debug mode the message handler thread um blew up in memory usage the, the one of the ideas for warnet was that we would catch that kind of thing before it happened um so it would be cool to see uh, Warnet running um, different types of simulations over long periods of time, um, kind of like a miniature test net, I guess, where we can really control everything, including transaction activity, and um, monitor for those things. Go ahead, Merch. Uh, I guess it's already been said, but uh, I wanted to break it down a little more. Basically, what you cannot do when you run the regular framework is 
look at behavior between multiple nodes. That's generally just difficult to test uh, in unit tests or in, in functional tests. So what Warnet gives us access to is all of the behaviors that emerge from multiple nodes on a network. How do addresses propagate? How does the peer-to-peer -peer communication affect memory? Um, how do messages propagate on the network? And so forth. Yep. Matthew, given that you guys are working towards uh, a 1.0 release, uh, are there things that people should be aware of both before that to provide feedback or testing or after that once you guys release it that would be valuable for either individual developers or the broader Bitcoin ecosystem of projects and, and businesses? Like, what, what would you want them to know or do? Yeah, sure. So we have a, uh, every, all the features I've described so far, we have working um, in Docker, meaning if you have one machine uh, with a Docker daemon, you can run as many containers as your poor little machine can handle. Um, uh, all the guys that I mentioned working on the project, we're pretty much focused right now on adding Kubernetes as an optional backend. So you should be able to run um, all the features of Warnet in either you know, Docker, um, which we could see like uh, SimLN users, maybe a Lightning developer running 10 nodes on one machine just to do some Lightning experience uh, experiments. They can use Docker. For the larger stuff, like hundreds and thousands of nodes, um, you could deploy that on Kubernetes where you have more machines, more physical machines available. So Kubernetes is, is piecemeal right now. It's not... Um, I think that's kind of what we're, we're waiting for. We were going to try to sneak in a, a version one release before adding Kubernetes. Now Kubernetes is sort of half in there and half not. Um, so we'll probably wait till that's all done. So that's one heads up, I'd say. If you're going to use it, um, stick to the Docker mode, which is the default anyway. Um, and then, yeah, it's, you know, we, we tried really hard to make the documentation uh, very clear. And I've, I've handed off the project just without any... Uh, handholding or guidance to developers like Carla and Martin, um, even Peter Willer took a look. And, uh, so, you know, hopefully the, the, the documentation is enough that you can just look at the repo and get started. And of course, if you run into any problems, open an issue and let us know it's probably a documentation error. But at this point, I'm pretty proud of the features that we have, at least running in Docker mode. And I can't wait to see what we can do once we can scale to Kubernetes. And just to maybe bat the point home here that this is not a product or service that is for sale. This is an open source uh, set of tools that anybody can run and improve on and run within their own bespoke environment. Yeah, definitely, of course. Um, again, you know, we're, we're, our target audience is Bitcoin Core developers and Lightning Core developers. Um, if you're just making a, a wallet app or something, um, I'm not sure if this is the right tool for you, but you know, maybe if you want to see how some protocol you're writing affects hundreds of nodes at, this, at the same time, you might find that kind of interesting. Um, we've also considered um, in the future maybe ho hosting a, a single massive Warnet instance that we can allow multiple users, maybe um, the core devs or something like that could get permission um, to use like a one big shared Warnet. But yeah, everything's open source, of course, and anyone can run it locally. Very cool project. Thanks for coming on and explaining that to us, Matthew. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always great to hear from you, Schmitty. You're, you're welcome to stay on and hang out for the rest of the recap, or if you have anything to get to or any children to get to, you're welcome to drop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'll stick around if I can. Thanks. All right. Thanks again. Next section from the newsletter is our weekly coverage of a Bitcoin Core PR Review Club. This month, we covered the Testing Bitcoin Core 26.0 Release Candidate Review Club meeting, which is a little bit different in that it didn't review any particular pull request this go-around, but was a group testing effort. If you recall, we had Max Edwards on our podcast, and that was in number 277. He is also the author of the testing guide and also one of the hosts of the Bitcoin Core PR Review Club on this topic. So if you're curious about how Max framed the structure of the testing guide, the motivation and the goals of the testing guide, check out podcast 277 where we had him on. The review club session that we covered in the newsletter focused on a subset of the testing guide items in particular, including Git Prioritize Transactions RPC, the Import Mempool RPC, and V2 Transport BIP 324. Merch 
any color you would add there? And Larry, I also sent you an invite if you wanted to jump on and, and discuss any of this. Yeah, I, I read over the um, details of our review club. I, I think we don't have to really jump into the responses. Um, I, I think it's uh, interesting maybe to play around with features if you want to um, see what's coming out with the or what has been released with the new release because uh, it, it's out now since two days or so. Um, but yeah, so f for example, it, it's just not super relevant that uh, the V2 node or V2 transport node that they were testing with uh, happened to have all slots full and therefore they didn't get very far with testing that. Um, maybe we can just go on to talk about the features that are going to be in 26, which is our next topic anyway, and has large overlap. Yeah, I, I think that sounds good. Um, maybe I'll, I'll frame it and you can jump off where you think is valuable. Uh, and we're jumping to the Bitcoin Core 26.0 release. We talked about the testing guide just a second ago, which is a good way to play around with some of the new features if you want to be hands-on with it. But additionally, Merch did a nice verbal run through in our Optech recap podcast number 274 of all the major items from the release notes for 26.0. If you're curious to, to read about it, as opposed to being hands-on with the testing guide. Um, but Merch, maybe you have more to augment about this release. Well, I'm probably not the only one, but I'm really excited about the version two transport protocol. So we're going to whenever two nodes uh, connect to each other and do their handshake and figure out that they both support the new version 2 transport protocol and have it enabled, obviously, because it's going to be an, uh, disabled by default, they are going to start using the V2 protocol to communicate with each other. This has a new set of P2P messages, which basically just means that they're encoded differently but do mostly the same things. And especially the communication between two nodes will be encrypted. So this um, has some funny effects. One is this is actually more bandwidth efficient for compression reasons and stuff, which is a little funny and not the main reason we're doing this. The other one is previously everything was sent in clear text. So any node along the route would be able to see, oh, here's some Bitcoin traffic and they could listen in what people are sending. So for example, if you were the first one to broadcast a transaction and your ISP would, was somewhat invested in passively listening in on your Bitcoin traffic, they might notice that you were the first one to send that transaction. Um, with it being encrypted, you still can listen in because there's no authentication yet but you'd have to run a Bitcoin node in order to intercept and read the traffic. Otherwise, it basically just looks like white noise to you, completely random uh, strings of data. Um, Peter's been working on this quite a bit, so he, he can jump in at this point if I'm... Um... Oh, great summary. Okay, cool. Uh, then we got... Maybe... Maybe yeah. merch one one plug again. We had a PR uh, review club discussion in our recap podcast two sixty eight, in which we covered BIP three twenty four, and we also had Peter on as a guest to talk about BIP three twenty four and some of the the benefits of that. So if you're curious about this topic, which a lot of people are, maybe jump back and listen to two sixty eight as well. Sorry, merch, go ahead. Oh, I was out that week, so I didn't even know. Um, cool. So next is Taproot Miniscript. Um, people are maybe aware of Miniscript in general as a way of writing more complex scripts, but as a human readable in uh, having a human readable input. So you're basically just abstractly telling what you want and it produces the Bitcoin script for you. Uh, so far we had that per for pay to witness script hash output scripts. And now we also have that for taproot, uh, pay to taproot um, script trees. So that's gonna be new. And I think that's gonna maybe be a first step for people that want to do cooler stuff for their wallets. Um, now that we have 
that for descriptors, we have ways of exporting and importing very simply complex scripts. And that makes it easy for people to, for example, formulate a decaying multisig uh, policy that, or, or like there, I've seen a GUI that clicks together uh, a more complex policy for outputs. And you, you would just have new ways of interacting and constructing um, the conditions per which outputs are spendable. And it all gets just shuffled away into a taproot tree. Um, and you don't have to deal with the details of it. It hopefully should just automatically work in your wallet. I'm going to plug again here. Um, our recap podcast 273, where for uh, a unique situation, we actually brought on Antoine, who's the author of Bitcoin Core 27.255, which is porting mini script to tap script. We had him on to talk about that particular PR because it was interesting enough to jump into a discussion with him, even though it wasn't a news item. So um, we're excited that these folks can jump on and, and talk about these particular ideas. So I feel feel like I should be plugging those discussions. So that was 273 to talk about mini tap script. Yeah, uh, then we have all the plumbing working for Assume UTXO. Assume UTXO will be a way of more quickly bootstrapping a node so you can use the wallet quickly. Basically, you're jumping in with a more recent snapshot of the UTXO set and then just process the blockchain starting from that height to the current chain tip. And uh, that way you're completely caught up with the current uh, UTXO set. You can um, unilaterally on your node evaluate whether transactions are valid. You can uh, you could mine or do other things. So you, you'd have a node that is caught up with the network and synchronized with the chain tip much quicker because you're just going to have to process a couple months or a few months of of data. In the background, the um, node will perform a full validation of the remainder of the chain, starting from Genesis block to the height of the UTXO snapshot that you uh, input. And uh, once it has finished that, it'll, it'll verify that the UTXO set snapshot that it started with uh, was correct. Um, this is hard coded in the client, so you can't provide your own UTXO snapshot. Um, but well, all this plumbing is working now, and this release does not yet have such a snapshot um, hash, I think, but we'll probably have one next. Or Peter, do you remember? Um, as, 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 uh, I haven't followed up on this project in detail, but I think the, the big missing piece is uh, a question of where will you get the, ch the snapshot? And that's just an unanswered question at this point. Uh, everything that's in is the framework for importing them, but the, the, the next big question is still open. Yeah, I think we don't have a hash for a snapshot yet in this release. And the mechanism by which the snapshots would be distributed distributed or made available is also uh, a work in progress. So we'll probably see that in the next major release or maybe the second next. Uh, finally, we have a new experimental RPC for submitting packages of transactions to your node. This is, for example, useful if you want to uh, close a lightning channel that was created at way lower fee rates and currently cannot be closed because you just can't broadcast a commitment transaction and you have a child transaction that provides more fees but the parent transaction is under the minimum fee rate of your node you can now submit a package of a single parent and a single child uh, to your own node and that way add it to your own mempool allowing it to be mined we do not have in place uh, relay yet for these packages but work on that is progressing yeah, uh, this is the submit package RPC. And oh yeah, we have the import mempool RPC too, which allows you to import a mempool snapshot, uh, which is sort of just a 
similar feature to what we had already. When you shut down your node, we write out our current mempool and we also import it when we start up the node again. So now we can also import mempools from uh, other sources. So for example, if you had a running node and you want to bootstrap a second node that you're just starting up with the running nodes mempool, you could export the mempool on the uh, node that was online and import it in the freshly starting node. Uh, that's mostly useful for doing stuff with your own nodes. You should not accept mempool snapshots from other users because they can uh, bypass the transaction validation that way or change the priority on transactions. So for example, if you set a custom fee rate per which a transaction should be um, prioritized into a block, that would propagate with a exported mempool. So uh, don't, don't let someone give you a funky mempool, but if you want to trade mempools between some of your nodes, you could do that, for example. Anything that I missed, Peter? Uh, um, I don't think so, but... Great overview, great release. Thanks to everybody who put their time and attention towards authoring code that went into that release, testing it, discussing on the mailing list, uh, doing, uh, going through the testing guide. Um, it takes a lot of effort, and I want to thank everybody for that. Then oh, I wanted to say something about uh, something that's cropped up on social media recently. Um, I just wanted to mention something about the Bitcoin Core release cycle. So Bitcoin Core always maintains the branches of the last two major releases. So currently we would consider V26 and V25 maintained. So bug fixes will um, be released in minor releases like Maybe we'll put out a 26.1 that fixes issues with 26. And we might backport some of those fixes also to the 25 branch, which then would be, I think, 25.2 at this point. However, older branches are not maintained. Uh, 24 is now in end of maintenance. So once 26 is released, we will no longer backport fixes to 24, except if there is a critical security issue, depending on the severity, it might still be backported. 23 is end of life. So 23 does not get any patches anymore. If you're running an old node uh, and you want to take advantage of current bug fixes and so forth, you should consider to run um, releases from the last two major branches or at least look at what bug fixes get released for those branches if you're running an older version. So you might can might be able to backport specific things that you want to fix in your older version uh, if you have some special reason why you're still on an old version. Otherwise, I would heavily recommend that you run one of the maintained versions. Thanks for that call out, Merch. We have one other release from the newsletter this week, LND 0.17.3 beta RC1. There are three bug fixes in the release notes at the moment. Um, some of those, uh, I think we, we covered one of the concurrency issues previously. There's an issue with an old version of Go, and there's also a bug that could cause LND to hang during shutdown. And then there's one performance improvement listed in the release notes, optimizing the memory usage of the BTC wallet dependency and the use of the BTC wallet's mempool, which requires folks to be using Bitcoin D20, uh, sorry, yeah, Bitcoin D uh, version 25.0 and above to take advantage of that optimization. Anything to add there, Merge? Okay. Moving on to notable code and documentation changes, we, I'll take this opportunity to solicit any questions or comments from the audience. Feel free to reply in the Twitter thread here, as some of you have already done, or request speaker access. We have two PRs this week. First one is Bitcoin Core 28848, which changes the submit package RPC error handling to make it more helpful when a any transaction fails. Uh, Merch kind of went through the the usage of submit package earlier when going through 26.0 release. The PR author who is here noted, quote, rather than make judgment calls on what error is important, 
which is currently just returned the first error, we simply return all of the errors and let the caller of the submit RPC function determine what's best. I think there was maybe some confusion with if you, if you just get the first error and there's a bunch of other ones, it's maybe harder to, to debug. And there's also a couple bug fixes that are also in this PR in addition to the better error handling that I've mentioned. Last PR this week is to the LDK repository, LDK 2540. And this adds to LDK's blinded path support by supporting forwarding node as the intro node in a blinded path. The PR notes, quote, the next PR, which is LDK 2688, adds support for receiving to a multi-hop blinded path. And then after that, they're gonna follow up with complete blinded forwarding support. So they will not be advertising route blinding support in their feature bits just yet until some of those other PRs are merged. And this blinded path PR is also part of LDK's Bolt 12 offers project tracking issue, which lists all of the tasks and PRs that are required to implement Bolt 12 offers in LDK. So can you tell us what an intro node is? I'm not sure that's clear from the text. My interpretation of that, because I saw that it was the terminology used in the PR, but it was the the way I interpreted it is that's the first node in a blinded path, so the initial node. Um, and right now, I, th I believe LDK only supports single hops, which is why they need to add the multi-hop there. So if, you, if you're the first node in that blinded path, you can be supported if it's a single hop, and they need to add the multi-hop after that. So I don't know. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I was like, I see. <laughs> Merch, I don't see any requests for speaker access or any additional comments in the Twitter thread. Anything you'd like to say before we jump off? Uh, no, all good. Um, I hope you have a nice vacation or a trip. And uh, next week will be Dave and me hosting. And then I think we'll see you back in two weeks, right? Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. It'll be good to have some time off. And I think we did a dry run today, and you should be good with Dave. And I think listeners are in for a real treat with you two powerhouses uh, riffing on newsletter number 281. Peter, thanks for joining us. Matthew Zipkin, thank you for joining us. Thanks for the questions from Larry and Abubakar. Thanks for having me. Bye. Cheers.